People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And we are joined from the UK on the line by Sherry Lapina, who is a Canadian author who has a number of books to her name. She really reached the public mind and uh, came into the reading public's consciousness with her book, The Couple Next Door, which was released in 2016. In 2017, she followed that international bestseller up with another international bestseller, The Stranger in the House, and now in 2018, a third book that is being released around the world at the same time, An Unwanted Guest, has been brought to us by Sherry, and we joined on the line by Sherry. Welcome to Chai FM and to people of the book, Sherry. Thank you very much. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful privilege to have you on the line. The first question that I ask all my interviewees is, instead of me reading your biography out, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners in your own words and on your own terms? Okay, I'm a writer from Canada, and I write thrillers. Um, I've just written my third thriller called An Unwanted Guest, as you, as you mentioned. Um, and it's a closed-room mystery, sort of like an old Agatha Christie story. And I was inspired by um, her book, And Then There Were None. And I wanted to sort of update it and give it sort of a darker, edgier psychological underpinning. So that's sort of the premise of this new novel. You've been writing for more than a decade. You really came to the international, uh, to the international audiences beyond your native Canada with your book, The Couple Next Door in 2016. What was the experience like becoming an international best-selling author? Someone that people can recognize your name on a book anywhere and they know who you are? It was a very strange experience. <laughs> I had written um, a couple of other books earlier to Couple Next Door. Um, they were sort of comedic books, and they did not sell outside of Canada. Um, then when I wrote a thriller, it became an international sensation very quickly, and it was quite surprising to me. I, I certainly hadn't been expecting it, so it was a very nice surprise. And it, it continues to surprise me, really, how popular that book is. It just keeps on going. Um, yeah, it's been quite a whirlwind, and I, I do a lot of travel now, a lot of promotion. And as you say, it's um, the book's selling all over the world, so it's changed my life quite a bit, actually. Do you enjoy traveling and meeting your readers? I do. I'm on tour right now, actually, in the UK, and I'm going to go to Ireland for a day. And I've been, oh, this year I've been to Dubai, I've been to Turkey, I've been to China, Greece, um, I'm going to Iceland. I, I do a lot of traveling for my books, and I really enjoy it. I'm lucky to be able to do it, actually. Does all this travel sometimes ignite an idea for another book? Um, not directly. I don't, um, at least so far I haven't set my books in foreign lands, although that might happen. But certainly meeting all the other writers and all the people involved in publishing and all my readers, it does um, spark ideas because I talk to a lot of crime writers and a lot of people. And so I find that doing that really keeps me creatively nimble and interested and so on. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't used a foreign setting yet, but certainly... Meeting people is always very stimulating, I find. You followed up a stranger, uh, you followed up, uh, your first book, a couple, the couple next door with a stranger in the house in 2017. And once again, that mm -hmm. book reinforced your reputation as a writer of dark thrillers in a domestic setting. What led you to that specific setting for your thrillers? What? What made me choose a domestic setting? Yeah. And I just couldn't hear you there for a minute. Yes, yes. The domestic setting and the psychological yeah. thriller. Yeah. Well, I, partly I've, I've always been drawn to psychological thrillers my whole life. So I've, I, even as a kid, I was reading suspense novels. You know, I just like suspense and I like psychological aspects. I'm fascinated by psychology. Um, so, you know, in my books, I'll often have a, a psychological 
angle to it. Like I'll have uh, a character with postpartum depression or dissociative disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that. And I'm quite interested in psychopaths. Um, so I'm very interested in the psychology behind all of these stories. And I find the domestic setting is, you know, it's something I'm very familiar with. So, you know, I wouldn't be comfortable writing, you know, a political thriller or a medical thriller because I don't know a lot about those um, milieus. But the domestic thriller I feel very comfortable with because, you know, it's very familiar to me. And it seems to be one that people are very interested in reading about right now. So I've quite enjoyed doing the domestic um, settings to my books. This new one is a bit different. It's uh, it's not a domestic thriller per se. It's more of a, I don't know, like an old classic kind of mystery thriller. Which brings us to the new one that we, we're here to talk about, the uh, An Unwanted Guest. What is the basic premise, the basic storyline of An Unwanted Guest? Okay, so there's a bunch of people are going to a, an old hotel out in the mountains in the Catskills in upstate New York, and it's the middle of the winter, and when they get up there, there's an ice storm, and it cuts off all communication, and they're quite isolated up there. And there's uh, 10 guests and uh, the people running the hotel. And the first night, someone dies. And in the beginning, they think it might have been accidental, but they quickly realize that um, it's been a murder. And then there's another person killed. And then the tension mounts as um, the characters and the reader realize that people are dying and they wonder who's going to be next. And, of course, you try to figure out who the killer is. So it is sort of a, a riff on the old Agatha Christie story, and then there were none. And as you said earlier, you've updated, and then there were none for the 21st century, and you've added whatever necessary ingredients 21st century readers need <laughs> to find within a dark psychological thriller. Yeah, exactly. What led to the to the homage to Agatha Christie? I guess it's just that I've always been a fan, and I got that kind of story. It's just a new thing. I like a story where there's a lot of tension, and you've got a closed environment, and people are at risk. I like to see how people behave under stress, so I like to put them in a difficult situation and see what happens. So to me, it was a really appealing story idea. The, the, the timetable, the schedule that you're working to, you've had a new novel every year since 2016. That must be quite crushing. And you're also touring a lot and you're traveling to meet your, to meet your readers and to meet other people in publishing. How do you manage it all? Well, I work very hard, <laughs> and I'm very disciplined. It is difficult to write a book a year, particularly if you um, do travel a lot and, you know, have other obligations and family and so on. So I'm very disciplined. I have to be. Um, I'm pretty much writing all the time, and if I'm not writing, I'm, I'm revising, and I'm promoting all the time. So it's it's very, very busy, that's for sure. But I do love it, so it's fine, but it's very, very busy. How, how do you move from original idea to the final, you know, the writing the final sentence in the book? How do you find your inspiration, your research, and how do you craft your characters and the plot? Well, I sort of, um, I always begin with just an idea of, of something that stimulates me. So I have to have a premise that I feel that I could build a book on. I'm not somebody who can write an outline for a whole novel because I don't know what's going to happen at the end when I haven't even started the book. For some reason, I just can't sit down and outline a novel. I just don't get the ideas that way. So what I do is I have a premise or an idea, like a, a couple who leaves their baby at home and goes next door with the monitor, or the idea of a bunch of people going to an, an isolated hotel. And then I just start writing, and I, I as I write, I start to develop characters, and I sort of get an idea of where it's going as I go along, but I don't really have the ending in mind. Like, I, I don't know 
who the characters are when I begin, and I don't know what the twists are, and I don't know how it ends. Um, and I wrote I wrote my first couple of books that way quite easily, but my third one, um, Unwanted Guest, when I got about a third of the way into it, I really had to stop and think and go back and change things, and then I wrote some more, and then I had to think, and then, because it's a puzzle mystery, so it's a very complicated story to write. <coughs> so I had to have, by the time I was about halfway through, I sort of had to have a better idea of who the killer might be. Um, so that one, I did start to sort of plan about halfway through. Um, but generally, I'm, I'm the kind of, you know, kind of writer who just goes with it and sees where it takes me, but... You can't really do that with, with the kind of story I wrote uh, most recently. So um, I don't know. I, I I research as I need to. Um, you know, I'll, I'll hit a stage in the book where I, I need to look something up. I look it up. But my books aren't hugely researched. I mean, I do do research about the psychological aspects and so on and, and setting, but they're not terribly research based. They're they're set in the present and and. They're not uh, they're not research heavy books, but yeah. So I normally I write in the morning for a few hours, you know, six days a week, and then um, I usually write a book in about six months, and then I have about a you know six month revision process or publishing process, and then I'm starting on to the next one. You know, I think I take a, a weekend off between the books. <laughs> it, it sounds like such a organic process that the, the, the characters flow out of you and then they lead you towards the the end of the book. It sounds uh, it's, 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 it's wonderful to hear from different authors how they write. Some are very structured and everything's drawn up on boards before they start and then they just furnish the details. But with you it's it's you're living your story while it's flowing out of you which it sounds you know it's, it, it, it sounds like it's the type of thing that us readers who are not necessarily writers can identify a very lot with because that's how we live our lives as well. And and I think that might be one of the reasons that uh, your book strikes such a, a strong chord in your readers because we can see so much of our lives lived in the same way that you, you know, we don't know how you write, but we can somehow pick it up that it's very similar to our lived experiences, which I think is what we all want out of a book. That's a really interesting point. I'm glad you said that, yeah. Um, you're right. I mean, it, it is very organic. That's a good word for it. And it is just like life. You don't know where it's going. It's unpredictable. And my books do have that feel to them, and possibly because that's how I write them. But for me, it's a lot more exciting that way to not know what's going to happen next. And, yeah, I let the characters take me where they're going to take me. And it is unpredictable. There are lots of twists. And I like it when I can't see where it's going. And, and I like to have the aha moments, just like the reader. So maybe that's what makes the books feel propulsive. Are any of your books being turned into TV series or movies? Have there been film rights bought and productions? The Yeah, it, it takes quite a while for film stuff to happen. My um, first book, The Couple Next Door, um, is underway to be made into a TV series. So it's been optioned and... Uh, Paramount Studios is trying to um, turning it into a TV miniseries. Um, so uh, that would be great. <laughs> the others we haven't. Um, there's really nothing much going on yet. What books do you read, and which authors do you read when you're not writing or touring? Well, actually, um, I sort of read all the time because I'm always writing and touring, so I don't really ever take a reading break. But um, I love to read thrillers. I mean, I, I actually read quite widely, so I, I do read. I enjoy reading nonfiction as well. I've just picked up a book called Blitzed about um, uh, drug taking during the Nazi years. Um, I've re- I'm reading some thrillers right now. I'm reading um, The Double Life by Flynn Barry, which is very good. So I and I just went to Harrogate, uh, the festival there, and I picked up about fifteen books um, from you know various crime writers that I'm dying to read. So I do read quite a bit. And I read literary, I read nonfiction and thrillers. And, <laughs> and you get you get a bit of inspiration and a few ideas and just uh, also reading enjoyment from reading other writers. 
Yeah, I, you know, I don't read other authors for ideas. Actually, that's a, a problem when you read a lot of crime thrillers. You don't want to take other people's ideas, right? You don't want to be influenced or do something too similar to what someone else has done. So that's the downside of reading a lot of crime thrillers while you're writing. You don't want to be influenced um, by someone else's writing. But I read mostly for pleasure, to be honest. I mean, I just have always been a big reader, so I just keep reading. I, I get more inspiration probably from nonfiction reading, <laughs> you know, newspapers and nonfiction books than I do from crime crime reading. But, you know, I do I do pay attention to how other crime writers craft their novels. I do get inspired that way. Um, but I try to not um, take plot elements away from other crime novels because I don't want to be doing that. Then in the last question, what are you currently working on? And the, shed, the publishing schedules always work. You hand a manuscript in and it takes almost a year to be published. So you, have you really worked on next year's, the 2019 thriller? Are you working on the 2021, or the 2021 already? Where, what are you working on? Uh, I wish. I wish I was working on the 2021 book already. I'm actually... Just, you know, um, about a fifth of the way in or maybe a quarter of the way in to 2019's book now on the first draft. So I'm a little bit behind schedule, um, but I'll, you know, I'll catch up. I've been doing a lot of, you know, travel and so on this year, so I'm a bit behind. But normally I would try to get my first draft in in the fall and then we revise it over the winter and then it comes out in the summer. So it's a pretty tight schedule, I have to say. But there's so some, far, I've been able to manage it with you. <laughs> and and, then, and we, we th- we're very thankful for that. You're under a tight schedule, but we're very thankful because the, the books have been fantastic. <laughs> They've been really great, gripping, domestic, psychological thrillers. Uh, so the yeah, effort well, that you put in much. is appreciated by authors, around, by, by readers around the world. And so we can look forward to something next year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it'll be done. It'll be twisty. This is People of the Book yeah. on 101.9 High FM. We're just finishing our conversation with Sherry Lapina, Canadian-born uh, and resident author, lives in Toronto. Her, her three books that have put her on the international reading map for thriller lovers in 2016 was The Couple Next Door, 2017, A Stranger in the House, and the book that we were discussing today, which has been released around the world, An Unwanted Guest. It is available in bookshops in South Africa and wherever you'll be traveling. And uh, Sherry, it's been a wonderful treat for us to talk to you while you are on author tour. Uh, I'd like to thank you for bringing these fantastic titles to all of us. We can read them. And just to wish you good luck for the for your tour, and you know, keep keep entertaining us. <laughs> Thank you very much. People of the book on one hundred one point nine High FM. This is People of the Book on one one point nine High FM. We've just finished our interview with Sherry Lapina, Canadian author, whose new book, An Unwanted Guest, has just been released. And now for all of our loyal listeners, we've got two books to give away today. The first is uh, both of them we've discussed in past shows. So get your fingers ready, exercise them to start pressing the buttons on your cell phone. You can either get hold of us on Telegram or by SMS. The Telegram number is 0618951019. That's 0618951019. SMS number is 34519. The first book we're giving away is called The Girl Who Smiled Beads. It's the story of war and what comes after by Clementine Wamaria. And it's the story of Clementine Wamaria. She was six when war broke out in Rwanda. For six years, she and her older sister wandered through seven African countries, including South Africa, in search of safety. Age 12, they were granted refugee status in the United States. At 24, she became the youngest ever person to serve on the United States Holocaust Museum's Memorial Council, appointed by President Obama. Now 30, she is a member of the Board of Directors at Women for Women International. 
She's an experienced speaker, a storyteller, and a human rights advocate. This shattering, hauntingly beautiful memoir about surviving the Rwanda genocide, the search for identity, and how we preserve our humanity is her first book. All you have to do is send us your name and the title of the book that you are currently reading. Telegram us on 0618951019 or SMS us on 34519 and you could win this book. The next topic that we're going to be focusing on here on people of the book is three books that have politics as their theme. The first one is a book that created huge waves around the world when it was released a few few weeks ago. The book is called The Road to Unfreedom, and the author is Timothy Snyder. He's a lecturer. He's a professor at Yale University. And the book is a very timely look at the way that politics is playing itself out. It focuses firstly on Russia, but then it moves to the rest of the world. Even presidents who don't believe in history need a historian to rely on. When asked in 2014 by a delegation of students and history teachers for his chosen chronicler of Russia's past, Vladimir Putin came up with a single name, Ivan Ilyin. Ilyin is a figure who might have easily been lost to history were it not for the posthumous patronage of Russia's leader. Putin first drew attention to him. Ilyin was a philosopher, not a historian. He was a Russian who died in exile in Switzerland in 1954. When Putin organized the repatriation of Ilyin's remains for reburial in Moscow in 2005, Ilyin's personal papers held in a library in Michigan were also brought back home at the president's request. New editions of Ilyin's dense books of political philosophy became popular in Kremlin circles, and all of Russia's civil servants reportedly received a collection of Ilyin's essays in 2014. And when Putin explained Russia's need to combat the expansion of the European Union and laid out the argument to invade Ukraine, it was Ivan Ilyin's arguments on which Putin relied. Now, Timothy Snyder begins his pattern-making deconstruction of recent Russian history, which is the book The Road to Unfreedom, which by design, he argues, is indistinguishable from recent American and British history. So he starts the account with a comprehensive recounting of Putin's reverence for the works of Ilyin. Like much of Snyder's analysis in this unignorable book, the framing offers both a disturbing and a persuasive insight. Ilyin, an early critic of Bolshevism, had been expelled by the Soviets in 1922. In Germany, where he wrote favorably of the rise of Hitler and the example of Mussolini, he developed ideas for a Russian fascism which could counter the effects of the 1917 communist revolution. As a thread through his nationalist rhetoric, he proposed a lost Russian spirit, which in its essence reflected a Christian God's original creation before the fall and drew on a strongly masculine, pure sexual energy. Ilyin had been psychoanalyzed by Freud as well. A new Russian nation, according to Ilyin, should be established to defend and promote that ineffable spirit against all external threats, not only communism, but also individualism. To achieve that in end, Ilyin outlined a simulacrum of democracy in which the Russian people would speak naturally with one voice, dependent on a leader who was cast as the redeemer for returning true Russian culture to its people. Elections would be rituals designed to endorse that power, periodically uniting the nation in a gesture of subjugation. To establish that dystopian state, Snyder argues, Putin's regime has deliberately pursued two of Ilyin's central concepts. The first demanded the identification and destruction of the enemies of that Russian spirit to establish unity. Who were these enemies? Alien influences, either Muslim or Jewish, fundamentalist or cosmopolitan, who were intent on damaging Russian virtue. If these enemies did not exist, they would have to be invented or exaggerated. 
After the terror attacks on Russian institutions, think back to the Moscow theater siege and the Beslan school massacres, Chechen separatism was used as a reason to bring first television and then regional government ships under state control. Those policies were led, Snyder documents, by Vladislav Surkov, the former post-modernist theater director who was Boris Yeltsin's deputy chief of staff and then Putin's lead strategist. Surkov directs a policy borrowed from Ivan Ilyin, which he calls centralization, personification, idealization. With Surkov's management, Putin was to offer masculinity as an argument against democracy, Snyder suggests. And you can easily recall the pictures of uh, President Putin riding bare-chested on his horses across the Russian steppe, trying to be the embodiment of this Russian masculinity. In this culture war, disinformation was critical. Russian TV and social media would create a climate in which news became entertainment and nothing would quite seem factual. This surreal shift is well documented, but Snyder's forensic examination of, for example, the news cycle that followed the shooting down of flight MH17 makes essential reading. On the first day, official propaganda suggested that the Russian missile attack on the Malaysian plane had in fact been a dodged attempt by Ukrainian forces to assassinate Putin himself. By day two, Russian TV was promoting the idea that the CIA had sent a ghost plane filled with corpses overhead to provoke Russian forces. The more outrageous the official lie was, the more it allowed people to demonstrate their faith in the Kremlin. Putin made, Snyder argues, his direct assault on Western factuality a source of Russian national pride. Snyder calls this policy implausible deniability. You hear it in the tone of the debate around Russia's involvement in official Russian involvement in the murder of Russian defectors living in England. The second half of Snyder's book explores how Russia has sought to export this policy to those who threaten it, primarily through mass disinformation, where confusion to our enemy is the principle with the aim of dividing and polarizing pluralist pluralist democracies, in particular the EU and the US, against themselves. And that Russian meddling and trying to disrupt European and American politics is a major source of headlines around the world today. The book we're discussing is Timothy Snyder's The Road to Unfreedom, and it looks at how Putin built up a culture of fake news and how he's exported that to the West. It's a timely look at Russia, Europe, America and the major forces within the political realm. It helps us see our world as it, as if for the first time and having heard this review, you can almost conclude that it's Necessary reading for any citizen of a democracy because democracy needs to be defended if it's not to be manipulated by people like Putin. And he was in South Africa just last week for the BRICS summit. Uh, it would have been quite interesting if the bookshops were filled with book, the, this book, Timothy Snyder's The Road to Unfreedom. Uh, and this is a major theme that the intellectuals of the world are looking at. How Putin has created this culture of disinformation within Russia and export and how he is exporting it to the West, especially at this moment in time through his support of Trump, all the social media manipulation through Facebook before the American elections in 2016. And the book also looks at how he manipulated through social media the possible outcome of the Brexit referendum in the UK as well. Now, the next book we're going to look at, also keeping to pol- politics and looking at political uh, v- uh, political variables in the world, is written by a person who is no stranger to politics, especially in America, but through her position as the Secretary of State under George W. Bush, also no stranger to foreign affairs throughout the whole world, 
This book is called Political Risk, and it's written by Condoleezza Rice, who was the American Secretary of State, and her co-author, Amy Zegart. The book Political Risk, How Businesses and Organizations Can Anticipate Global Insecurity. In the past, the chief concern used to be whether a foreign dictator would nationalize the country's oil industry or impose onerous new regulations. Today, political risk stems from a widening array of political agents, from Twitter users and terrorists to local officials, transnational archivists, hackers and insurgents. What's more, the very institutions and laws that are supposed to reduce uncertainty and risk often increase it instead. This means that in today's globalized world, there are no safe bets. Political risk affects companies and organizations of all sizes, operating everywhere from London to Lahore, even if they don't know it. I'm going to read from the very beginning of this book because when I received the book, I started reading the first few pages and I was gripped and pulled in to Condoleezza Rice and Amy Zegart's passion for educating their students because they lecture MBA students in America, but also their passion for converting the main lessons from the MBA course on political risk into a book. The first chapter is called The Blackfish Effect, 21st Century Political Risk. In April 2013, SeaWorld Entertainment Incorporated was riding high. The American theme park company had completed an initial public offering that exceeded expectations, raising more than $700 million in capital and valuing the company at $2.5 billion. To many Americans, SeaWorld offers family fun amid penguins and killer whales, gushed the New York Times. The story ran with a picture of two adorable penguins waddling around the New York Stock Exchange as part of the promotional tour for the IPO. Eighteen months later, SeaWorld Entertainment's fairy tale had become a nightmare. The stock price had plunged 60% and the CEO, Jim Atchison, announced that he was resigning. No adorable penguins this time. Instead, the pictures accompanying the headlines featured a giant orca. Suddenly, SeaWorld's famed killer whales were killing the company. Atchison and SeaWorld were blinded by political risk. Not just any kind of political risk, but 21st century political risk, where the political actions of small groups or even lone individuals supercharged by connective technologies can dramatically impact businesses of all kinds. It all started with the Los Angeles documentary filmmaker named Gabriela Copperthwaite, who liked taking her twins to see the orcas perform at the SeaWorld theme park in San Diego. In 2010, Copperthwaite happened to read a tragic story about how an orca named Tilikum killed veteran trainer Dawn Branchow in the middle of a show at SeaWorld's Orlando Park. Copperthwaite spent the next two years making a low-budget investigative documentary called Blackfish, which depicted how SeaWorld's treatment of orcas harmed both the animals and their human trainers. The film cost a grand total of $76,000. Released soon after the SeaWorld initial public offering in 2013, the movie captured the attention of celebrities and quickly went viral. Actress Olivia Wilde was just one among many who took to Twitter. This is her tweet. Only movie I want to go see this week, Blackfish. Watch out, SeaWorld, we are on to you. Animal rights groups seized the initiative. Online petitions mounted. Public pressure grew. Musical groups including Willie Nelson, Bare Naked Ladies, Heart and Cheap Chick cancelled shows at SeaWorld. Corporations cut sponsorship ties, among them Hyundai, Panama Jack, STA Travel, Taco Bell, Virgin American Airlines, and Southwest Airlines, which had enjoyed a 26-year marketing relationship with the theme park and even painted SeaWorld animals on its airplanes. Federal regulators and California lawmakers jumped into action investigating safety practices and proposing bills to ban orca breeding in captivity. And this all resulted in the company's stocks suffering huge losses. This cascading impact of the film has been dubbed the Blackfish Effect. Political risk was once just about actions of government, such as dictators seizing assets or legislatures regulating industries. Today, 
Governments are still the main arbiters of the business environment, but they are no longer the only important ones. Instead, anyone armed with a cell phone or a Twitter or a Facebook account can create political risk, galvanizing action by other citizens, customers, organized groups, and political officials at the local, state, federal, and international levels. Events in far-flung places are affecting societies and businesses around the world at dizzying speeds. Anti-Chinese protesters in Vietnam lead to clothing stockouts running out of stock in America. Civil war in Syria fuels a refugee crisis and terrorist attacks in Europe, leaving nations reeling and the tourism industry shaken. Video of a United Airlines passenger being forcibly dragged off a plane in Chicago goes viral in China. A North Korea dictator launches a cyber attack on a Hollywood movie studio. This is not your parents' political risk landscape. Put in the most elemental terms, 21st century political risk is the probability that a political action could affect a company in significant ways. This is the book Political Risk by Condoleezza Rice and Amy Zegart, How Businesses and Organizations Can Anticipate Global Insecurity, written by a former American Secretary of State, and both herself, Condoleezza Rice and Amy Zegart, lecturers in MBA programs. This book will teach either companies or organizations how to live with the political risk that is inherent in the world around us today. 21st Century Political Risk, that is the book Political Risk, published by Vanderfeld and Nicholson. It is available. And now we have a giveaway before we t- go into our third um, political, into our third political book. The, the book that we're giving away now is a thriller. I reviewed it a few weeks ago. It's called Ghost. It's written by James Swallow. It's published by Zaffer, and it is a very, very, very exciting book about cyber warfare. We're not dealing with a governmental spy agency, we're dealing with a corporate espionage agency but the spy works is the same and uh, the dangers that societies face comes from elements within the world who have an axe to grind. In this book which is one of the top action thrillers of the year a brutal assassination happens in a silent city There's a devastating betrayal at the heart of this corporate covert strike force, a deadly pursuit across a digital battlefield, ruthless terrorists fueled by the desire to exact revenge. And James Swallow's books all feature Mark Dane, who is a former M16 spy who now works within a corporate spy system. Only he can stop this catastrophic chain of events before the world turns to war. The book is extremely scary in creating a scenario where a terrorist group can hack into a smart city's electronic or cyber system and totally, totally disrupt modern life just by painting that scenario in a novel and making it real through the pages of the book is enough to keep me awake at night worrying about what the future holds. If you work in government or if you are responsible for maintaining internet networks around the world, this is the type of book that you read for worst-case scenario analysis. So to win a copy of Ghost, which is a fantastically great thriller, all you have to do is send us your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading. SMS number is 34519. The telegram number is 0618951019. Don't be scared to enter. All you have to do is send us a WhatsApp or a telegram, uh, an SMS or a telegram message and you can be winning this book, Ghost by James Swallow. It'll keep you absolutely on an adrenaline rush until you turn the last page. And we've got a number of books including our third political book called New Power, straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're talking books, and we're looking at books with the political theme. So we've looked at Timothy Snyder's The Road to Unfreedom, the Russian state under Putin exporting 
fake news and destabilization within political structures from Russia to the West. Then we have political risk, how businesses and organizations can anticipate global insecurity, co-authored by Condoleezza Rice and Amy Zegard. Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State for America under George Bush. And then the third book that we're going to look at is called New Power, How It's Changing the 21st Century and Why You Need to Know. It's by Jeremy Haymans and Henry Timms. For most of human history, the rules of power were clear. Power was something to be seized and then jealously guarded. Under this old power, we lived in a world of rulers and subjects. Now we all sense that something has changed. From Corbyn to Trump, from taxis to B&Bs, from YouTube sensations to darker phenomena such as the emergence of ISIS, in our new hyper-connected world, ideas and movements can spread and flourish with astonishing force and speed. In the book New Power, co-authors Jeremy Haymans and Henry Timms confront the biggest stories of our age and trace how new power is the key to understanding where we are and who will prosper in the 21st century, drawing on examples from business, politics, popular culture, and social justice, as well as case studies of organizations like Lego and TED, they explain the forces that are changing the course of our age. In a world increasingly shaped by new power, this book, New Power, will show you how to shape your future. This is pretty similar to political risk, whereas political risk was looking at the political risk endemic in the new world, in this hyper-connected digital world, and how to best keep as much political uncertainty or political risk uncertainty at bay. New Power is showing us how the structures work and how you can use those structures to your best advantage. A lot of overlap between these books, which is part of the reason why we mention them and discuss them in the same show. Just to give you a little bit of a taste of this book as well. Welcome to the New Power World. This is the beginning of the book New Power by Jeremy Haymans and Henry Timms, published by Macmillan. Power, as philosopher Bertrand Russell puts it, is the ability to produce intended effects. That ability is now in all of our hands. Today we have the capacity to make movies, friends or money, to spread hope or spread our ideas, to build community or build up movements, to spread misinformation or propagate violence, all on a vastly greater scale and with greater potential impact than we ever did even a few years ago. Yes, this is because technology has changed, but the deeper truth is that we are changing. Our behaviors and expectations are changing. And those who have figured out how to channel all this energy and appetite are producing Russell's intended effects in new and extraordinarily impactful ways. Think of the hoodie-clad barons who sit atop online networks a billion users strong. The ranked political outsiders who have raised passionate crowds and swept into office. All the everyday people businesses and organizations who are leaping ahead in a hyper-connected world while others fall back. This book is about how to navigate and thrive in a world defined by the battle and balancing of two big forces. We call them old power and new power. Old power works like a currency. It is held by a few. Once gained, it is jealously guarded. And the powerful have a substantial store of it to spend. It is closed, inaccessible, and leader-driven. It downloads, and it captures. New power operates differently, like a current. It is made by many. It is open, participatory, and peer-driven. It uploads, and it distributes. Like water or electricity, it's most forceful when it surges. The goal with new power is not to hoard it, but to channel it. To start to see how new and old power work, have to read the book New Power by Jeremy Haymans and Timothy and Henry Timms. This is what they're discussing. The the book has a feel like a Malcolm Gladwell book. So you're looking at real cases, a lot of research, 
all made very, very accessible. The mission of this book, the future will be a battle over mobilization. Those who flourish will be the best, those best able to channel our participatory energy for the good, the bad, and the trivial. And the battle will have big implications for ordinary people, for organizations, and for the world at large. The book shows you the type of skills that you need to become a person who exercises new power and how to take into account the barriers that old power still have, the legacy that old power still has. This book is grounded in our own experience, creating new power models and trying to bring more participation to more people. Henry, that's Henry Timms, one of the co-authors, launched hashtag Giving Giving Tuesday, a philanthropic meme that became a movement, raising hundreds of millions of dollars for charities around the world. Jeremy, that's Jeremy Haymans, the other co-author, created a technology-powered political movement in his home country of Australia as a 20-something that became the biggest in the nation. And he has since helped to launch many more movements around the world via his organization, Purpose, which is now headquartered in New York. We've seen the potential and pitfalls of new power up close, and now we want to share what we've learned. We've been working together and engaging with businesses and communities to dig deeper into what's changing, why, and what we can do about it. In the pages ahead, we'll share what we've discovered. This is the book New Power. It's by Jeremy Haymans and Henry Timms, published by Macmillan, and it's the third of our political books that we've been looking at today. We'll be back with a few more books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're looking at a whole lot of different books. The theme we just finished was political books. Tim Snyder's The Road to Unfreedom. Then Condoleezza Rice and Amy Zegart's Political Risk, How Businesses and Organizations Can Anticipate Global Insecurity. And then New Power by Jeremy Haymans and Henry Timms. The next book we're going to look at isn't so much about power, it's about the power headquarters of a human being, which is in our brains. It's called The Genius Within, Smart Pills, Brain Hacks, and Adventures in Intelligence, and it's written by David Adam. David Adam, David Adam explores the history of intelligence and ways to improve his own, raising timely questions. Which of us would not want to enhance our intelligence? Indeed, some ethicists, such as John Harris at Manchester University argue that it is our duty to improve ourselves if we can and in turn society and the quality of life for future generations. If we were more intelligent, perhaps we would invent better ways to generate energy efficiently at less cost and damage to the environment or generate ideas for solving political disputes without engaging in aggression and conflicts. It is interesting that when we think of improving ourselves as individuals, we immediately consider boosting cold cognition, logic, critical thinking, memory capacity, rather than hot cognition, the type required for you to understand what another person is thinking, termed theory of mind, and so important for soft diplomacy, resolving conflicts, and psychological therapy. Cold recognition is non-emotional and reflects what is measured by the intelligence tests, whereas hot refers to social and emotional cognition. David Adam, the author of the book we're discussing, The Genius Within, regards cold intelligence as a key target for enhancement. And many agree that superior cold intelligence is a great advantage. And the book is a fascinating account of of intelligence and how to measure intelligence. And then also different ways that people have tried to improve their cold cognition. He tries a lot of these things. He purchases smart, the smart drug, modafinil, and takes the pills to see how much improved his cognition is. Then he also asks the questions raised by cosmetic neuroscience and how the desire for human enhancement will change society as we know it. 
To, that ex- to what extent is neuroenhancement cheating, undermining effort and hard work? Should those who are disadvantaged in life have the chance to use technology to close the gap? These are some of the questions that, Adam da- that David Adam answers through the course of the book. The, the book is The Genius Within. It's smart pills, brain hacks, and adventures in intelligence. And it's at the cutting edge of neuroscience. And so they're not exactly politics, but it's the exercise of power over the human mind. And then the last book for today, to finish with a thriller, something that's easy to read, uh, entertaining, a little bit dark, and uh, will give you a little bit, quite a twist towards the end. It's Peter Swanson's All the Beautiful Lies. Peter Swanson is the author now of, this is his fourth book, first one, Her Every Fear, the second one, The Kind Worth Killing, and sorry, the first one was The Girl with the Clock for a Heart, the second one was The Kind Worth Killing, the third one was every Her Every Fear, and now his fourth thriller is All the Beautiful Lies. On the eve of his college graduation, Harry is called home by his stepmother Alice to their house on the coast of Maine following the unexpected death of his father. His father had a small little book shop uh, selling rare books. Uh, he had relocated from New York to Maine, and now he's dead. But who really is the stepmother Alice, his father's much younger second wife? In a brilliant split narrative, Peter Swanson teases out the stories and the damage that lie in her past. And as her story entwines with Harry's in the present, things grow increasingly dark and threatening. Will Harry be able to see any of it clearly through the fog of his own confused feelings? And Peter Swanson will keep you riveted, guessing to the very, very end where all the twists unturn and everything's unraveled. This is almost the end of the show. All the books that I've meant, mentioned today and also our interview with Shari Lapina I've posted on our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. You'll find everything there with pictures of the authors and the covers of their books. And then just to say that we've had two winners today. The first book was The Girl Who Smiled Beads by Clementine Wamaria. The second one, Ghost by James Swallow. And then just looking forward to next week. Next week we have an uh, interview with Tommy Adeyemi, we've, inter- we've reviewed her book, Children of Blood and Bones. It was a big international bestseller and an event. The rights to the book was sold for a seven-figure number when it, was, when it was shopped around to different publishing houses. It's been made into a movie as well, and it's a combination of Nigerian mythology and fantasy all mixed together. So it's a very, very topical book in something like Black Panther. At the same time, it's also the type of book that crosses over from young adults to, ad- from young adults to adults. Very timely because it's all about the experience of race, you know, blacks experiencing racism. And at the same time, it's uh, an up and coming author who, although based in America, is African. So it's a big author interview to look forward to next week. And until then, good Shabbos and keep reading.